Welcome to the Crescent Podcast. I'm Leanne. This podcast is an extension of my personal philosophy and commitment to continual growth in all areas of life. I firmly believe that optimal health comes from addressing all areas of us as human beings, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. Through expert interviews, I hope to both inspire and enable you to create sustained change in your own life. Thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy. Okay, well, here we are. We made it. For those who follow on social media or get the newsletter, you'll know that last week we had some tech issues. My laptop fell into a body of water. And so the laptop that I do all of the podcasting on was completely ruined and I had to wait for my new laptop to arrive and get all the tech set up. So that is why this episode is going up a little bit late, but I am so excited to be sharing this conversation with Dr. Atlas with all of you. She has been on the podcast before and it was one of the most listened to episodes I've ever released on her book, Emotional Inheritance, talking all about generational trauma a profound book and a profound interview. I hope you all get a chance to listen to if you haven't yet. Today, she's on the show to talk. We're diving more into trauma. (laughs) No surprise there. But this is a really special and I think unique conversation because as many of you may know, in the beginning of this year, I shared about my journey with overcoming some childhood trauma over the last year and a half. And so I really wanted to get to have some experts on the show to piece through my own experience of trauma healing and some of the things I've noticed and get their two cents on it and get some additional insight on it. And so that is really what this is. And some big themes that we talk about today are repressed memories and how this is a real thing and why our brain represses memories, dissociation and what that looks like as a child, the the nuance and the confusion of being abused by a, a parent or a caretaker, and so many other amazing, wonderful things. So without further ado, let's get right into it. I also linked my previous conversation with Dr. Atlas in the show notes below. So in case you missed that, that will be there for you as well. But please enjoy this interview with Dr. Galit Atlas. Well, Dr. Atlas, welcome back to the Crescent Podcast. We had you on talking about your book, Emotional Inheritance, which has been huge. Just so you know, actually, I should—I don't even think I've told you this. That was the most listened to episode I've ever put out. Oh, wow. So that was amazing. And I recommend your book all the time. But today, I think, is kind of a unique conversation we're going to get to have of not so much me throwing questions at you, and but more me sharing my trauma healing journey and and getting asking you questions and kind of getting your input and your insight on that. And so just to jump right in where I wanted to start, because I actually feel like this is the starting point for my journey too, and I'll paint the picture a little bit, is talking about repressed memories and repressed trauma. Because to share what my experience was probably about three or four years before 
I had these memories surface, I had had some feelings like, I feel like maybe I was sexually abused. Mm. And, you know, I would, I would regularly look up like signs you were sexually abused as a kid and all of them fit. All mm. of them like were what I was experiencing, but I had zero memories. And so I just was like, I don't know what this is. Long story short, I had spent a year, all of 20, well, I know just a few months of 2022, daily doing my Evox therapy. So using that technology, doing the biofeedback and working through just different life stuff and patterns that I felt stuck in, patterns of anger or shame. And then in the middle of one of my Evox sessions, all of a sudden, a very clear memory surfaced of being sexually abused by my father. And it, I had to sit with that for a while because, and I had to research and Google, like, can you repress memories? Can we repress emotions? Is this even real? And to be totally honest, I didn't find a lot of information on that. So that was what I at least wanted to kick off this conversation with you with. Is that something you see? What else can you expand on that for us? And I might add in some other tidbits too, but I was kind of surprised when I tried to Google, is this real? Can we repress memories? And I personally, at least about a year ago, had a very hard time finding information on that. Yeah. So first of all, thank you so much for trusting me with this really personal you know, material and, and, and you're so brave to be able to talk about it. And I'm sure this will help a lot of people because I'll start with your last question because it is about, about trusting our memory, about trusting our minds, about what is happening. And I, I understand it, that when you Google it, you cannot really understand and find what is, what's going on in my mind when it comes to memories. And my perspective is a psychoanalytic uh, perspective. Of course, I know some of the research on that. And I think one of the first things that Freud actually taught us is that our mind will always protect itself mm-hmm. from traumatic memories. And, you know, some of my technique and the ways that I um, think about memories and work with memories is that uh, in emotional inheritance, I mentioned that it's very often I start sessions with asking people about Mm -hmm. their first memory yes i remember this yes and there's a lot to say about first memories and maybe we can talk about that a little bit later what what is a first memory but related to everything you're saying about repression and about and about the way our defense mechanism works we know that while in a we could detect in a first memory something real about the person's history, about often about the person's current struggles and unresolved issues and and uh, family history and uh, and a lot of other things. It's like almost like a window into their unconscious, mm. which we also know that very often a first memory is what call, uh, Freud called a screen memory. Have you ever heard that uh-uh. term? A screen memory is a memory that is there to protect us from a tra- another memory uh, that is traumatic. Okay. And what's tricky about a screen memory is that it both blocks the actual memory 
and also hides it within it. Hmm. So often, like not too long ago, uh, somebody, not a patient, told me about her th- her first memory. Uh, and in her first memory, as we as we kept talking, I realized that her first memory is actually a screen memory because what I suspected is that the real memory was of sexual abuse. And mm-hmm. as we kept talking in the screen memory, there was something that was not sexual abuse, but a little boundary violating, mm-hmm. a little bit something that the, the emotional experience in it were, felt off. And as we kept talking, we, what happened is that slowly... Uh, the traumatic memory started appearing. And of course, in therapy, that's something that we do very carefully, and, and, but we look for it. Outside of therapy, I'm much more careful with, you know, with exposing people's uh, Right. It's from the grocery store. We don't need that coming up out of nowhere. (laughs) But I smell them very often. And so that brings us back to this idea that a memory, of course, could be repressed, and of course, and I think that is a there is a huge ethical and you know question about that uh, related to sexual abuse and and exploring sexual abuse after so many years and what the memory means and how come you didn't know about it and only now you right and the whole uh, you know legal uh, aspects mm-hmm. of that as a psychoanalyst there is no doubt in my mind that I, I never doubt it I I know it I know it and I've seen it many many times. Hmm. Do you, here's something that I thought about once that had surfaced is because now I'll have clients go, okay, I don't, you know, I don't want any scary memory just jumping out of me. (laughs) But what my takeaway and my two cents on my experience was because I had been doing this daily, weekly emotional work and support and, and also learning how to see me and hear me and protect Mm. me, I think I could be wrong, but I think I had created a level of safety in my subconscious such that it was like, I can bring this up now and it's not going to destroy us. Right, right. You know, what I feel is that uh, traumatic memory do not usually jump on us, Mm. you know, and uh, the mind is a very sophisticated thing and the mind always uh, protects us from... Mm -hmm memories that we are not ready to know or to process and you know the evidence for that is that many people actually do not have a lot of childhood memories and I'm not talking about very very early childhood I'm talking about people who don't remember almost anything from their childhood and Mm -hmm. uh, the assumption is that there was something there to not remember as an active you know as Uh an active act to not remember is a thing and so I think that what you're saying is true, that safety and the wish to know, I mean, we're going back to all of the philosophy that I present in Emotional Inheritance about wanting or not wanting to know. And what does it do for, what does it do when we know and what does it do when we don't know? And mm-hmm. each of those have consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I imagine maybe in some instances we don't need to know to start Mm -hmm. to achieve more healing. And then maybe in other instances we do. I will say for me, 
having that memory surface, it sounds so weird and backwards, but I'm actually so grateful because I had had that weird nagging feeling and those uncomfortable things come up and, but it was kind of like, oh, without a memory to tie it to, you know, I'm not going to go to a therapist and be like, can you work on me about sexual trauma? It didn't, I didn't feel like I had real validation or permission even to do that. So I think in my case, it was helpful that that came up, but I could see how maybe not always it's like, oh no, we can start to shift things even without that necessarily. Yeah. You know, it's very interesting because I think there is something very specific in, in the nature of sexual abuse Hmm. that is slightly different, I think, than in other cases of abuse. Um, And of course, we're generalizing here because mm-hmm. I, I think that when it comes to sexual abuse, um, there is always that feeling that about our own sense of reality. I think that is mm. true for other cases of abuse, especially when there is no actual scar, there is no actual witness. There is, it's, we don't know as children, am I right? Is that really happening? Our mind tries to protect us. So we are, we start doubting ourselves. So, you know, different kinds of abuse, uh, like, um, you know, narcissistic parents with gaslighting and, and toxicity that leave their kids with a lot of self-doubt mm-hmm. and a lot of questioning of, on their own reality. But sexual abuse is very is very specific in that way, and many people that experience sexual abuse feel uh, the, the psychoanalyst the Sandor Ferenczi called it confusion of tongues, and I think confusion is in generally a feeling that is um, that happens, and the confusion. Maybe I'll name a few a few types sure. of confusion. Uh, one of them is really related to memory Mm. and that's what you're describing do i did that actually happen even people that remember Mm -hmm. they sometimes remember it as a form of uh, you know hallucination or dream or or reverie or something that they doubt and they think maybe i made it up Mm -hmm. maybe that wasn't maybe it was a fantasy of mine maybe it wasn't actually true so the question the normal thing when it comes to sexual abuse we find is the questioning of the, our, their sense of reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and that is uh, you, not the exception. Yeah. And I'm thinking about even about do I, re- not only that you don't remember, but when you do remember, you ask yourself, is that a real memory or I just made that up? Right. And then, you know, in those moments, because I absolutely had those, I think the, what took me out of that is I, couldn't make this up Mm -hmm. my like a healthy safe mind would never even imagine these things happening it just would never go there um and that i agree with you completely validating completely (laughs) and i'm sure um, it's a very healthy voice that says why would i right and think about it the the younger the child is the you know it it doesn't make sense when you see children's uh you know uh, pictures of uh of things that are sexual it's developmentally, it doesn't match. Mm-hmm. So why would a child make up something that they're not actually there developmentally? Mm-hmm. It, it is, you know, to me, the fact is that when there, there is no doubt 
about it. The only thing that as, as clinicians we do is uh, try to really explore and understand and validate that self-doubt is, is a normal part of what victims feel. Mm-hmm. Self-doubt and especially about their reality. Mm-hmm. What's reality, what's fantasy? And, and we have to remember that, that many times, not only that it was done without witnesses and nobody knew about it, so it's like it's, you, you feel like maybe I made it all up. In, in, in many situations, the people who kind of knew about it deny it. So you are left so alone. I see, I see you. Yeah, well, because they don't, they don't want to have to acknowledge that now, however many years later, that, oh, I had a hunch, mm-hmm. but I didn't do anything. But think mm-hmm. what it does to your sense of reality. When, right. Let's say your mother suspects that or, or even sees that or, or, like, or figures this out and she denies it. And she says, no, it actually didn't happen. And what does it do to your own sense of reality? Mm-hmm. Think like, wait a second, but my mom was there and she doesn't think it happened. So maybe it actually didn't happen. And maybe right. I made it up. Right. Yeah. The reverence we just, I think, innately have for our parents, I think adds to this confusion mm-hmm. we're talking about, which we might get into a little bit later of specifically abuse that comes from parents. Where yes. I'd like to go next though, because... We'll talk about the effects of that, of abuse from a parent and just maybe how complex and convoluted that Mm -hmm. can be. I really want to talk about dissociation or disassociation. And I always mix those up. And I'll share a little bit of what I've observed. But I'd love, again, as always, I'd love your look on this because now having learned more about this and about the nervous system and the freeze state and the fawn state and some of these different things... (laughs) When I look back over my childhood, I feel like there are many, many signs that I was living in a state of dissociation for much Mm of it. Not having a lot of memories. I remember I would have these moments where I would talk to myself. Like if I was gonna go do something I was nervous about, I'd I'd be like, okay, just don't check out. Don't check out from this experience. Mm -hmm. And that was the only language I had to describe it. But I would find myself sometimes like, almost feeling like I'm not even in control of my body and what I'm doing. I'm just kind of like floating through this, this situation. Mm-hmm. Even if it was mm-hmm. just like I was going on a first date with a boyfriend just, yeah. and I would just completely check out and then feel like oh, I did not show up. I wasn't the there. Yeah, yeah, I didn't show up and represent myself as me. I was like some kind of shell of myself. The other thing, and I'm very curious about your input on this is, when I would, well, two things, when I daydreamed as a kid and I daydreamed a lot, one, there was an always an element of me being saved. Mm. And what I will tag on to that is once I, once this trauma surfaced and I started doing the healing, now I still daydream. There's not even a desire for me to imagine someone saving me. So it's like subconsciously my heart knew that and wanted to create those scenarios of feeling saved from whatever it was. You were asking for help in your daydreams, right? You actually needed help. Mm -hmm. 
Right. But the second piece of that is I, mm. it was never first person. In my daydreams, I was always above it, kind of watching the scene unfold. And now I recognize, oh, maybe that was also a sign of dissociation. dissociation. Exactly. So that's a little bit of my experience. Feel free to just whatever that stimulates for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing this because I think you're touching something really important. Dissociation is, especially when it comes to sexual and physical abuse, uh, the main defense mechanism and why mm -hmm. I'll, I'll explain it in a different in a very simple way and I think what you're saying like I didn't I checked out is exactly right it's a mm -hmm. it's a beautiful way to say it because when something horrible happens to your body your only way to not fall apart is to leave your body mm -hmm. let your body be there without you so it happens to your body, and I see that you're, you're, I see your face when I say that, because yeah. if you think about it logically even, what else can save you? If you mm -hmm. cannot run away, you cannot call for help, because especially when it's somebody you know, that the person that, that you call for help is the person that actually hurts you. Mm -hmm. So where are you going to go? Mm -hmm. the, you're trapped, right? You're yeah, trapped, and maybe you do the... Body you do the fawn a little bit mm -hmm. and then the fawn doesn't work. So we just ultimately have to resort to the you freeze have and the shutdown. to escape. Mm -hmm. uh, again, it's, it's an escape mechanism that is right. You can't, you can't flight because you you can't run anywhere. So what you do is really you, you, you leave your own body. You dissociate, you keep your body to be there. And it's like in your fantasy, you watch your body from the outside. Something is happening to your body. But, and it happens in, in sexual abuse always. Mm. And, in, and also in physical abuse. When, you, when, when kids are abused, they have to abandon their body. Otherwise, they will be destroyed. So mm -hmm. it's a very, very helpful mechanism. Uh, in very severe cases and, and severe, uh, you know, situations, what we see is that that becomes a multiple personality uh, mm -hmm. disorder, right? And in many, many, many cases of multiple personality disorder, there is a history of some kind of abuse of the body, sexual or, or physical. Mm. And that starts... Like, like in every defense mechanism that starts as a defense and then later in life it becomes one of our main problems. Mm -hmm. The way we learn to survive becomes our pattern and it's not as you describe. It's Then you go on a date or any, any situation that you need to, so to speak, as you said, show up and you protect yourself and you, you can't show up, mm -hmm. you, right? You, you dissociate. You're not, yeah. You can't fully be there. Or when will you become overwhelmed, right? Yeah, I think the brain, if we want to talk about it maybe in a technical sense, it's like, oh, that dissociation thing, mm -hmm. that worked in the past. Yeah. And now this is uncomfortable. I'm nervous. I'm scared. Okay, great. Let me go use that tool again. Yes. And to, I think it's important to say sometimes it is helpful. It can save us. What I have found in my adult uh. life, the ripple effect has been 
that has become my default mm. response state. That has become my my mind, body, and spirit's default tool or resource it goes to in discomfort. And that's a lot of what this last year has been because mm -hmm. I felt so stuck in patterns of self-sabotage, in patterns of just total shutdown. Yeah. And now understanding the deep, deep roots of this, I mean, I've made so much headway now where because I've also cleared some of that deeper trauma, but then at the same time, given my mind, body, and spirit, other resources to go to when I'm overwhelmed or when I'm stressed or nervous or whatever it might be. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Because I think what you're saying clearly is that the original defense, and I'll add to it, I think it's always helpful. Mm. Because because originally. Mm -hmm. as a child, oh, yes, originally, for sure. For always sure. helpful as a child. Mm -hmm. Because without it, we will suffer intolerable amount of pain mm -hmm. and it protects us from that pain that will cause us to fragmentation so originally i always think to myself thank god totally right yes what would we do without it thank god and then we understand as you said that that becomes the pattern that becomes the default that's where we go in order to save us in situations of so to speak again normal distress Mm -hmm. And you want to have other tools uh, when it comes to day-to-day uh, -day distress. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. What do you think of the the imagining and you're like in third person? Mm -hmm. do you, have you heard of that before? Is that common? Yeah, yeah. I think that that is a piece of, of abandoning your, your own body in that mm -hmm. situation, right? It's, it's again part of the defense because... Uh, many children, when they talk about uh, grown-ups, when they talk about their childhood abuse, either physical or or sexual, they even see the abuse in the same way. They yes. even see, especially if it was a constant abuse, it, it's mm. that that's their something that they experience, and there is complex trauma there. Uh, the the their their day-to-day -day experience. Uh, is that they start looking at themselves from the outside. They start mm -hmm. seeing their body being abused by somebody, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that is a version of what you're talking about that maybe you used as a child, uh, even though you didn't have the memory yes. uh, to remember that exactly that. Yeah, I think what is what has been really interesting in that too is I would never have said, oh yeah, I'm living in a state of dissociation. I'm pretty high achiever. I've accomplished yeah. a lot of things. And, but when I started to really do the pattern puzzling and mapping, it was like, oh, every time I get to a certain high, there's like a fallout right after that. Or I, I'm trying to bring something to life and then for two weeks, I'm like a zombie. I just can't do anything. I can't show up. I'm totally depleted. So I had these patterns of, I would make some progress and I could show up in my life in an every day, but then anytime it got too much or I was very sensitive to overwhelming things, the smallest things felt overwhelming. And it just is interesting how subtle it can be. I think from the outside looking yeah. in, it could have just looked like oh, she's pretty lazy. Like, what do you mean you, what do you mean you don't want to see any clients for two weeks? You know, yeah. it's like, but it yeah. was such a whole. But it's like you shutdown. need your system to regulate. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what you're saying. It's almost like every time you, I'll use again, your words show up, which means you, you, you actually are present. You become overwhelmed, even if subtle in subtle mm-hmm. ways, right? And dysregulated. And it's a lot for your system. And then you need to shut it down and recharge. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that right? Am I, am I yes, explaining yeah, it? Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I just think something I get so passionate about is I do feel that a lot many of us might be mm-hmm. stuck in a pattern of fawn or a pattern of freeze that is a protective pattern that shows up with maybe a very frequent regularity. And it can be so easy to internalize that as I'm broken, I'm just lazy, mm-hmm. I X, Y, or Z. Yeah. And But, it, you know, from the person who's experiencing it, it just, it doesn't even feel like I have a choice. It's just like my brain has right. shut down. And, and then trying to show up even just at the baseline level, the amount of energy and focus it takes to power through the shutdown is immense and depleting all in of itself. So it kind of becomes this vicious cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think that the framework of um, regulation and emotional regulation and, and, uh, and you know, being overstimulated is really helpful because Mm -hmm. what we do in those situations is that we really try to measure what where you get to not cross our own line because when you're talking Mm -hmm. about over you know people who are achievers i mean many people and i'm sure some of the people that listen to you are super ambitious and and sometimes super successful Mm -hmm. and i think that what we have to really understand how to work in that framework where we do we we show up or we function and recognize when we start getting closer to crossing our own line mm-hmm. to becoming a little overstimulated to becoming a little right dysregulated and how do we regulate ourselves and the more we can listen to that the more productive it is, you know, and I think that's true in many ways, uh, even to people who are hypersensitive to noise mm-hmm. or to light or to, you know, we, sensation. We learn, yeah. Yeah. Sensation. Like touch. To touch. Sometimes clothes to... would just be like, oh, the feel of this clothing on my skin right now is completely yeah. overwhelming me. <laughs> Exactly right. And I think what we do in, instead of pathologizing that, which, which is kind of usually the, you know, the old, the old school parents voice that says, oh, come on, you two, you two, you know, before every sentence there is, that's this two, you're too Mm -hmm. sensitive, you're too dramatic, you're too, uh, we just become different parents to ourselves who say, Mm -hmm. okay, let's recognize when it is about to be you know, to cross that line. We have, we have, we listen to our bodies, right? Mm-hmm. And then we listen to that and you think, okay, I'm about, it's about to be something that I need to stop. It's about mm-hmm. to be too much. And, and there are two things in that. One is recognizing it and the other is being able to really put the boundary and say, okay, this is where I go. This is where I regulate. And maybe it's not always has to be in patterns of, two weeks, two weeks, right? Mm-hmm. It could be in in different patterns. Every person with whatever pattern works for them. Uh, mm-hmm. It could be 
ending your day early. It could be working less, uh, you know, less days a week. But something that reached exactly the way you described it, that, um, you know, normalizes and gives you permission to regulate and recharge. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true not only for trauma survivors. It's true these days for everybody. The world yeah. outside is intense. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of things happen outside there in the world these days in the last few years. Mm-hmm. We all need to regulate and, restart and recharge. And I think a positive in that too is, again, at least from my experiences, my capacity mm-hmm. a year and a half ago was so much more narrow my nervous system's ability to stay in that window of tolerance. I mean, it was just so tiny. My ability to work at a certain pace for a prolonged period of time was, honestly, I think it was like two weeks that I could maintain a certain pace and then it was just that shutdown. And for me, the positive in that isn't, oh, I have this pattern because of my trauma and now it's gonna be like this forever. Mm. For me, it was okay. I see where I'm at right now. And initially, especially when the memory surfaced and I was deep in the healing work, it was, oh, I'm I'm not going to social gatherings. Yeah. I'm wearing baggy loose clothes because that's what yeah. just feels safe and comfortable. So I actually did give myself permission to, if that is too much, if that is dysregulating, not need to just, hey, okay, I don't have to do it. I'm not gonna watch that war movie. I just want to yeah. watch funny movies. So especially in those maybe initial three to six months, for me, it was, I'm not, I'm not trying to push myself at all. Yeah. It's too comfortable. And that was something I really had to communicate, especially to my husband and to my close group is yeah, that you don't push capacity. yourself. Yeah. yeah. I that love you. Don't you don't push yourself. Yeah. I'm not, I, I can't attend these gatherings right now. It's too much yeah. for me. But what helped you? You say you're saying that something changed. What so, helped you to right to feel that you that something developed or changed mm-hmm. in you? Well, I'll I'll share what I've the shifts I've noticed, and then I'll share some of the things I did. So now I'm not in that place. Now mm. I can go to social gatherings again, and you know work at a high pace for three months or you know whatever it might be and yeah wear whatever clothes i want to wear and feel comfortable so my window of tolerance has expanded mm. likewise my ability to regulate myself has expanded mm. but the first three months it was working with a therapist we were doing emdr i was doing the mm. evox on myself and then i was doing regulation techniques yeah often throughout the yeah. day yeah. Whether it was vagus nerve exercises, I also have and use the Apollo wearable, if you've heard of it, mm-hmm. super great. And then, but I think the biggest piece in it is, and you know, this is what I do with clients too, and, and probably what you do is, what, honestly, what does that three-year-old, that was how old I was, yeah, what does that three three-year-old old. need wow. to say? What does she need to hear? And a huge part of this is she was saying, I feel like you've abandoned me. Mm, You've left me here. In one of my sessions, I had this such a clear imagery of like that three-year-old at the bottom of this dark well. And she had been there for so long that she had just given up even trying to call for help. She was just, I'm down here. I'm going to be miserable. And so a big part of it was 
I need to see me and hear me and protect me. And even in the smallest ways first, like something as simple as, oh, you know what? The waiter brought the wrong order. You know what? That's not mine. Could you bring me the right order? And it sounds so silly, but it's like, in how many ways was I, like if my my three-year-old, if they didn't bring her food, the right order I would totally be like oh that's not the right order for my daughter can we change it but we don't do it for ourselves yes yes so and you know it's really true because in so many ways (laughs) I think anyone who listens to us would identify because we've all done that in Mm -hmm. so many ways we abandon ourselves and we especially abandon the distressed child because Mm -hmm. we identify with our parents that say what an annoying child this child is the distressed one Mm-hmm. She's not easy. She's mm-hmm. uh, upset. She's too upset. She's too, again, the two, right? She's too something. And so in, in our identification with our parents, we, we often abandon that child and say, and want to get rid of her, not just abandon mm-hmm. her, right? Want to get rid of her. Want to say like, oh, you shut up. Go stay in, stay in the basement, okay? Just don't interfere with my life. I'm successful. Mm-hmm. I'm great. I have everything I need. You are just a burden on me. So get out of here. And that's the way we treat our wounded selves. Yeah. Right? I have a new life now. You're not a part yeah. of it. You're not a part of it. Get away. Rather than no, let's walk together into this new life. But to to answer your question, I think the biggest healing part of that work was learning how to hear, see, and protect myself in in small ways and in big ways. You know, a big part of yeah. that protection, it became really clear, was I need to have a conversation with my father who was minimally mm-hmm. a part of my life still. And so we had a face-to-face conversation with my husband present because there it was there's no way I could have done that alone. And I just had to yeah. say, and this time I you know this happened. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, huge. that's a re- that's the reparation, right? To have mm-hmm. that and not be alone there. Yeah. And you had that. So tell me about that. How, you, you were there. I, with it your was. Husband. It was just. I know this happened. I don't need explanations. I don't need apologies because this happened Mm -hmm. you cannot be a part of my life at least for the foreseeable future you know maybe i don't know maybe there comes a day where we can sit and talk about this again but Mm -hmm. it was so clear to me that even the thought that i would have to potentially see him at a gathering or him text or even the thought of him texting me was like i can't even have this person in my sphere so had to have that conversation, which by How the way, how did he react? Yeah, how did it? Go? Oh, it was, it was horrible. That was probably outside of the trauma, like the second worst day of my life. Mm, wow. <laughs> I was in, like, I was having a panic attack in the middle of it, hyperventilating. When I got home, I was like jittery. I mean, total, like, and you know, prey under attack. I mean, um, yeah, yeah, like I was the prey. I was under yeah, attack. I yeah. needed to protect myself. There was a very real physiological and visceral response that came out of that. And it took me honestly a week or two to even regulate. It was something where the next day, every 30 seconds, every 30 seconds, I was replaying it in my head. And that's not usual for me. I don't usually have that ruminating Mm -hmm. thoughts and it's pretty calm for the most part. So it was just assigned to me, but because of all that work I'd done, I obviously knew what was going on in my body and was able to go, I am so dysregulated. 
let's go back into deep safety, reparation, nourishment, healing. But uh, to answer your question a little bit further, and this isn't something I've shared, his his immediate response was, how can you say you remember that, but you don't remember your mom hitting you? Mm. And physical abuse is worse than sexual abuse, was the next thing he said. Yeah. And And so he's saying, I'm not the bad guy here. I'm not the bad. You're confusing me. What I did is not so bad. There's something even worse. Right. And then his last thing was to say, like, I think you're under spiritual attack. He's Christian. You need to go Mm. see someone. So absolutely no resolution of any kind. And, you know, that's that's the most that I'll share. He didn't deny it. Right. No, he didn't deny it. He just said. I, that was not so bad and you are under some kind of spiritual attack. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it was huge. And I am so proud of myself for doing that. I don't know, you know, that's my experience. I don't know that that's the right way for everyone, but I knew it was so evident in my personal life. I have to do this. And it's really wild too, because I think there, you know, there's a lot to be said for energetics and what we're calling in versus what we're repelling. But it had gotten to a place where the month leading up to that conversation, like everything in my life had just come to a standstill. Hmm. No clients were coming in. No one was booking. It was Hmm. like the world, the universe, whatever. My spirit was just like nothing. I can't. You need to resolve this. Yes. I cannot take on a single thing. I cannot look anywhere else until this. I want to tell you something as as I listen to you about about the complexity of your father's response, because Mm. obviously, obviously, you know, I have a strong reaction to it and and it's not. And I'm sure anybody who listens to that, uh, it's enraging. But I think that it's it's also a gaslighting response. Mm -hmm. And the part of it that is forgive my language, a mind fuck, is <laughs> that, and, and the most damaging part actually in my mind is that it is the typical confusion of tongues that we started talking about before. Mm-hmm. And the original confusion of tongues is the confusion between the tongue, the language of love and the language of perversion. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? It means that as a child as, and as children, what we want, what we need from the grown-ups around us is protection and affection. We need love and we need to feel safe. And I think that sexual abuse often disguises itself as an act of love, mm. especially mm-hmm. by people who are close to us. Because those are the same people that we need Uh, protection and love from Mm -hmm. so we go to them and we need them and what and they're telling us us, oh this is love this is what it looks like you just don't know it yet exactly this Mm -hmm. is even if they don't say it in those words right that's what they communicate with us they communicate us we have something special to offer Mm -hmm. you it's Mm -hmm. special you are special again even if they don't say it in those words you are special you and i are doing here something really special and you are loved. And this is, and then confuse the two languages, the language of love and the language of perversion. And I think that what your father is 
uh, you know, here is response is a form of that because there is no denial, right? It's not like we are not, actually, we're not doing that. I didn't do that, uh, which would not be helpful in other ways, right? right? But I think that in some ways that is a repetition of the original, uh, the original perversion. Mm. It's a repetition of an act that uh, innocence itself that says it's not, what are you talking about i love uh-huh, you uh-huh. i never abused you yeah so i did this and this and this and that to you but it was kind of like that that's not so bad this is actually and i think in childhood that's part of what messes up with our perception of reality yeah because you can't you love that person this is a person that you love and dependent on as a child Mm-hmm. And you no, know what? this is something special, right? Yeah, I think I remember thinking this like a few days after the fact. I think one of the things that scared me so much in that experience was truly up until that point, and maybe this is the naivete and the protection, is I was really believing oh, he was just misguided. I do know that he had been sexually abused as a child and I empathize with that child. I hurt for that child. So I think there was a part of me that was like, he's probably so regretful and he probably is. It's just deeply buried now in the denial. But to stand there and look him in the eye and see that he was actively trying to manipulate me and turn it on me, that was scary. Because it's to like to make himself oh. innocent and to make himself, and I'm sure as it often is, you know, abusers identify as victims, mm. and that's part of the problem. And and many many abusers have been victims, and they are really clingy to that. I want to say we are because I think that in small ways we all are mm-hmm. clinging to the to positions of victims when we become aggressors or when mm-hmm. we becomes abusers you know and i think that that's what you're saying there is a little boy who's wounded there he is a victim and it's really really painful to know that you've done something so awful you need to be super brave and and strong and uh, and mature mm-hmm. actually and i think and 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 healthy in some ways you know and i think that when you are unhealthy and and ill in some ways you could keep gaslighting yourself and and the child and say not only not deny it but deny the damage you see perversion really is about Mm. a damage that is not acknowledged it is normalizing something that is hurtful Mm -hmm. do you know and that that shouldn't have bothered you yeah it yeah. Why does it bother you? And it's like it plays with your head, right? Especially mm-hmm. when it's somebody you you love and dependent on, mm-hmm. and and feel empathy for. Why would you be? He he is communicating with you. You are bad, not me. Mm-hmm. You're bad for blaming me for doing something bad to you. Mm-hmm. Why would that bother you? A lot of bad. Uh, there are other bad people that hurt you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you should blame them. Yeah, right. Yeah, that, that was the exact message. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Okay, there's there are a couple other things I wanted to get to, but I think where I'd like to land the plane is on talking about the layers of healing and 
I think this is important because when it comes to these topics, I imagine that there could be some people who are looking at it like, okay, what do I need? Three months? Will it take three months for me to get through this? And so in my experience, what I really saw so clearly is it came in emotional layers. So it initially, the, the first two months was, I really do think the repressed panic and the repressed fear surfacing. And that was expressed in, I don't wanna be around anyone. Mm-hmm. I wanna wear baggy clothes so no one can see my body. Yeah, then nobody can, like that, that. nothing can touch you also if you, no, nothing if you can wear baggy clothes, Touch right? me, yes, Not like my clothes. skin yeah. is covered at all times. Mm-hmm. And I think once I got through that, what surfaced was the grief of so many things. What happened, one of the people who's supposed to love me more than anything in the world and protect me better than anyone in the world was my biggest harm, my biggest aggressor. The, and all the things that came out of that grief that I didn't learn how to connect with a man, grief that I didn't learn what to expect from a person so many different things yeah and then layers of anger so can you speak more to that though because i i get it when you're in the midst of it you want to just be like how soon will i get through this yeah (laughs) and kind of feel like we can just okay i did a couple therapy sessions talking about it am i good can i put a bow on it can i wrap it up and put it in the corner but can you speak to that do you see that often that there are layers we need to peel back and often it doesn't all surface at once. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's the good and the bad news. I think the good news is that healing can start immediately and people start feeling relief Mm -hmm. very quickly after they start working. But uh, the, the journey is a long journey and it's not a journey that has consistent pain in it not mm-hmm. the original pain. I think there is some some real relief in starting to talk about it and and having less pain, but it comes in waves, like like in grief, mm-hmm. right? It comes in waves. And, you know, in, in emotional inheritance, I have, I have a chapter on sexual abuse and where I talk a little bit about my own experiences and talk about the nature of sexual abuse. And one of the things that I describe there is that thing that uh, Freud called Nachtraglichkeit in German. Uh, in, um, in English, it's called um, deferred action or afterwardness. What that mm-hmm. means is that trauma, and Freud wrote it especially about sexual abuse actually, is, is layered with new meaning throughout life. Which means exactly mm. what you were saying, that that's, there is a lifetime of every developmental phase, right. every, every time you reach a new place in life, a new emotional zone, you would reprocess it. And so, for example, as I said, at the beginning of, as a grown-up, when you, there is a moment where, you, where you're ready to know, when you're ready to start the work. And that is... An, an incredible moment. It's a moment of a lot of pain, but also with with a lot of relief. Mm-hmm. And usually that is done with another person. And then throughout life, uh, you know, when Freud was talking about sexual abuse, he was talking about the fact that, let's, let's take you, if you don't mind, as an example, a yeah. three-year-old girl. 
when she's three years old, the sexual abuse itself is not actually packed with sexual material because you're not in a developmental phase where you are actually sexual. Mm-hmm. And it's not always registered as something painful. Mm. Sometimes it does, and sometimes it's not. It's not always registered as something bad, so to speak, especially if your father is, is framing it as not so bad. So all of those meanings are coming usually later in life. And so, for example, when that little girl becomes a teenager, and suddenly, and in your case, when you were a teenager, you didn't know it yet, but suddenly you feel something a little different about your own sexuality, and you feel like, oh, Mm -hmm. something feels, I don't know how you felt as a teenager, but maybe off, or maybe Mm -hmm. there is something that I feel, and I don't know how to explain it. Yeah, I love what you're saying. It's almost like, you know, when you see a movie when you're 10, Exactly. Maybe it's an adult movie and you, you know, maybe you only notice this or that or the funny things. And then you watch it when you're 20 and you're like, oh, I'm pulling this out of it and I'm pulling that out of it. And then you watch it again when you're 30 and you're pulling exactly. new things out of it. Exactly. And then you have it when you have a, you know, when you marry or when you have a child. And when your child mm-hmm. gets to the same age, when you have a three-year-old child and your child is three and you're like, oh my God, that you, you process it again and again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And that's also a gift that we, it, it is really packed with new layers of meaning. Yeah, it, I, I see it that way. It feels that way to me. To me, mm-hmm. it feels like, oh, one more thing that I can uncover, yeah. one, one more layer of peace I can step into. But I totally acknowledge and recognize that a lot of people don't see it that way. It, it kind of feels like, oh, when is this going to be over? What do you mean? I, what do you mean I'm always going to have to be looking at this in I new know. ways? So it, that's not always easy to communicate. But for me, it's like, it's not about having to like keep looking back at the bad it's yeah. no joy is infinite peace is infinite and if you think your right. life's amazing right now how it's much gonna better be could more. it be you know how i think about it sometimes instead th- imagine a backpack right and you can look at it as if every every time you process it you add another rock into your backpack but the truth is it's the other way around it's like uh, as if you walk uh-huh. with a backpack filled with rocks right? Mm -hmm. And every time you do another round, you peel another layer, you take another little, uh, you know, rock and take it off your backpack. And it's a little lighter. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so instead of adding something, it actually is a process that, you know, helps you um, uh, unpack, as they call it, right? We call it unpack. Because it, it helps you unpack layers of it. Yeah. And of course, we want to unpack everything in one day, but we're but we're growing. So every time we grow, we have as as, as your example with the movie. I love it, right? When we grow up, we we ha- we understand more about it, and we can mm-hmm. unpack another layer. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love that. That's so perfect. And it's kind of like if you've gone all these years with that heavy backpack yeah. and look at what you've achieved. Oh my yeah. gosh. Imagine what else can come. Half of of the stuff that was in is already out. So Uh for you as somebody that carried like a huge backpack, to carry a small one is like nothing, right? And then every time you're like (laughs) getting rid of another piece and another piece. Now I can sprint up this hill, no problem. Yeah. Yeah, Without all that weight on me. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think that's a perfect place to close it out on that uplifting note. Thank you so much. I I want to acknowledge that this probably isn't a typical interview you do. It's not, you know, we didn't we didn't focus all on you and your work and your book, which is amazing. I'll make sure I link our previous conversation about emotional inheritance in the show notes below. So I'm, I really am so grateful because I know how busy you are. I know how much you've been traveling and it really is such an honor that you would, you know, sit here and actually be willing to have a conversation that's, you know, a little bit focused on me and, mm. and my experience. And you, thank you so much for, for trusting me with that. And I hope that that helps a lot of other people. Of course, I'm happy to help you and be there for you. And I know that you help so many other people who listen to you. So I'm happy to join you in that. Thank you so much. Yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs>